Well, we've had quite an adventure, speaking of adventures, over the past months. We took a pretty long break from the Gospel of John, and we studied ecclesiology in Acts 1 through 12 to prepare our hearts for studying joyful generosity over seven weeks, and we launched our uh, building campaign, and you as a church just overwhelmed uh, us here with your generosity and, and the joy in that, and so now it's time to be generous, but it is time now to get back into uh, the Gospel of John. And so with that, would you join me in prayer as we consider John's gospel? Our Father, we come now to you to uh, remember Christ and to get to the most distinctive revelation of Christ in Scripture, and that is the, the gospels and specifically the gospel of John. And we're so thankful, Lord, to be warmed by the words of Christ, to be taught, to be reminded of his grace and his mercy and his kindness. And we pray that the words that are spoken this morning would accurately reflect the truth of Scripture. I pray that the truths that you would have for us today would be sunk deeply into our hearts, into our minds, such that we behave like Christ, we speak like Christ, we think like Christ, because we want to proclaim Christ that we may be made mature in him. And so we thank you for this time, and we ask your blessing on your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The sting of sin is death. The sting of death is sin, rather. And Apostle Paul says, the power of sin is the law. It's kind of a hopeless statement that there's this sting, death, sin, and he goes on to say, but thanks be the God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And these are words, of course, from 1 Corinthians 15, 56, and 57 that tell us of this paradox that, that death hurts, it stings, but we do have victory. And so we're told that ultimate victory is ours. And we understand this, we get this, that if you've turned to Christ as your Savior, as the one who is the only way, the only truth, the only life, then ultimate victory is won through the cross of Christ. And we should understand this if you know the gospel at any level. In fact, the greater context of 1 Corinthians 15 is that this victory is most certain at death, that when all the rest of humanity is fearful and, and afraid at the moment of death, there is no fear for us. That we, in fact, can encompass and look forward to our own deaths because verse 54 of the same chapter says, death is swallowed up in victory because we'll see the Lord. And we love to talk about that. We, we, we openly talk about death at Grace Bible Church because we can be victorious in death. And so we get that. We understand victory at the end of the race. But between now and then, we have a life to live. And that time between now and then can sort of sometimes feel like one defeat after another, like jumping from the frying pan into the fire and into the blazing furnace. You know that you should have Christian joy, but it seems to elude you. You know that you should be conquering certain sins, but they seem to haunt you. You know that you shouldn't be anxious for anything, but anxiety wants to consume you at times. You know that you shouldn't be sensitive to correction or disagreement, but you continue to respond badly. 
the fruit of the Spirit, as listed in Galatians 5, begins to feel like a test that you're failing? Love? No. Joy? No. Peace? No. Patience? No. No, 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 no. Nine times. When you hear stories of faithful Christians living a life of devotion and focus upon Christ and kingdom purposes, it feels like you can't do that. It feels too hard. Maybe you're one of those, and, and there are those of you in this church that struggle with being sad all the time. Some of you have a temper. Some of you have irritants that just irritate you and everyone around you, and you think, when am I ever going to get over that? You may feel, can I put it this way? I'm just going to use the pulpit mic, if that's all right. You may feel, and I read this this week, woefully normal, easily bowled over, You can picture a triumphant Christian life. Here's what it feels like. You wake up singing a hymn and praising God. You're always smiling because of the gospel of Christ. You're deep in prayer for the needs of many. You have times of earnest study in the word, and every day you have aha moments in the word of God. You begin to grasp how the dots of scripture connect to one another. You joyfully serve in the church without ever a complaint, without ever any difficulties. You conquer sin after sin, day after day. You suffer with grace and patience in whatever trials the Lord gives. You're always patient with everyone. You always have the best responses, the sweetest tone, the kindest demeanor. Somebody insults you and say, could I pray for you? You spend time in the evening with those you love and they, with a tear coming down their face, say thank you for shedding the light of what a triumphant Christian life looks like in my life. And you go to bed that night with a smile on your face and a prayer on your lips and a song in your heart. But then your alarm goes off and you curse the day you were born because you barely slept because you were anxious about everything. The day isn't one minute old. You've already sinned against the Lord. He says, get out of bed. You say no. And you say, well, I don't want to do this and I don't want to do that. And you realize in 60 seconds, I'm already living a defeated Christian life. And the rest of that day, it just becomes a battle to remind yourself that you are, in fact, a Christian. And just to get to bed that night with a quick prayer, thank you, Lord, that this day is done. Maybe tomorrow won't be quite so catastrophic. And so what you picture and what actually happens are often very two different, thing, two very much, uh, different things. And what is this? Well, this is a battle. It is a, it is a spiritual battle. We're reminded by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And you might say, I don't want to deal with the authorities and the cosmic powers and the spiritual forces of evil. I'm having trouble dealing with the ingrown toenail that I wonder if is ever going to go away. I'm having trouble dealing with the little things in life. And the Apostle Paul then, of course, famously goes on to speak of the armor of God. And so we need, at some level, to derive spiritual strength, spiritual victory, a life of faith and joy and confidence in the Lord. And we'd like to return to the Gospel of John and find this triumphant Christian life in John chapters 13 and 14, and today we'll be considering John 13, 1 through 11. And so if you haven't turned there already, John 13, 1 through 11. 
And over the coming weeks, we're going to be examining the anatomy or the elements or the makeup of a triumphant Christian life. A triumphant Christian life. And to take the pressure off, can I put it to you this way? We need to think in terms of this as a process, not in terms of I've arrived or I haven't arrived. This is a process. This is a process of growing in Christ-likeness. Well, what is a triumphant Christian life? Books have been written along these lines. Books have been written that characterize this as a big secret. Well, if it's a secret, then why is it so important? But what is a triumphant Christian life? Well, we're going to define it as a life intentionally filled with certain elements of spiritual victory. A life intentionally filled with certain elements of spiritual victory. Certain pieces of the puzzle that form a picture of triumph. That is my heart's desire in my own life. It's certainly my heart's desire in your life. I've been praying for you as I'm preparing for this series. I, I, I yearn and long for you to live a triumphant Christian life, to wake up every day praising God for his grace and his kindness and counting his blessings and being amazed and awed at how God is working in your life. Now, even when we use the phrase, the triumphant Christian life, somebody can cry foul and say, ah, that's what the the the, uh, seeker-sensitive guys talk about, and that's what the prosperity gospel guys talk about. It can sound like the smiling sales pitch of so many false teachers who make millions playing off the natural human desire to live a triumphant life. But what the false teacher does is to twist and turn and mangle the biblical gospel for his own truth, really leaving out Christ for all intents and purposes, and focusing more on dishonest and fabricated platitudes and encouragements that are designed to, and I I can quote any number of teachers, get you through this week, unquote. Basically, it boils down to using techniques to coerce God to give you what you want. And so when we say the triumphant Christian life, we start to hesitate, like, boy, that sounds like these guys I don't want anything to do with. But just because false teachers try to hijack and twist the idea of the triumphant Christian life, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't examine what Scripture actually says in this regard. They don't get to take that away from us. And so we're going to learn of the triumphant Christian life from the lips of Jesus himself. In John 13 and 14, we're going to break the idea down into individual elements, and we'll just do one per week. And so the element of the triumphant Christian life we'd like to examine today, we'll call it a confession-filled life. A confession-filled life. It's going to take some time to work our way to this idea, which really forms the culmination of our thoughts today. So let's think about John 13 and 14. This is a very important part of our Bibles. It's often referred to as the upper room discourse of Jesus. It's more often referred to as the farewell discourse. This is his his last words to his disciples. It's Thursday evening of Passover weekend. Jesus has instructed his disciples to have a Passover meal ready for him. And for them in the upper room uh, in Jerusalem, he is going to the cross the very next day. The upper room of a typical house was a large room. It was the size of the whole house. And you went upstairs most often on the outside of the house. And you you got up there and it was just a large living space. Uh, Some upper rooms could even hold 100 or 200 people if the house was uh, big enough. And so Jesus and the 12 disciples have arrived they're seated at a low table. They would be reclined on their sides and leaning on, on one arm on floor mats, maybe some simple pillows of some sort. Supper has now been served. It's on the table. 
And before Jesus will eat with them and before he will institute the Lord's Supper, as recorded in Luke's gospel, he's going to shock his disciples by doing something really that's going to make everyone emotionally uncomfortable. But he's performing this act to teach some lessons. He's going to wash his disciples' feet. He has a couple of different object lessons that he wants to teach them. Today we'll focus just on the first one. And what Jesus is going to do is he's using a classic rabbinic teaching technique. It's meant to create curiosity. And it's a three-step technique. The first step is to perform some unusual act, to do something odd, to make everybody around you question and wonder what's going on. Well, and the second step then is to elicit that question, okay, I give up, what are you doing? And the third step is, that now there's opportunity for interpretation to reveal a truth. And so what the classic uh, rabbi would do is create this teachable moment through some unusual act, an obvious question, and then a revealed truth. And so Jesus does just that. He creates a teachable moment. And so we'll let that be the basis for organizing our thoughts today. The unusual act, the obvious question, and the revealed truth. The unusual act, the obvious question, and the revealed truth. First, let's look at the unusual act. I'm going to read the first five verses of John 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Verse 1 is an introduction really to the entire farewell discourse, to all of what Jesus is going to say in John 13 and 14. He loved his own who were in the world. This is a specific reference to the disciples. This is a general reference also to all who had believed in him. And it says that he loved them to the end. This is a very specific reference to what he was about to do, that he was about to go to the cross. He was about to love them all the way to his own sacrificial death for sin. In fact, you can translate, he loved them to the end. He loved them to perfection, or he loved them to completion. He did all that God the Father called him to do. Jesus is now about to serve his disciples in lowliness. He's going to demonstrate his own humility, his own submission to the Father. And more importantly, his act of foot washing, this is going to anticipate the much greater act of humility, the greater act of self-abasing love, his upcoming crucifixion. And he's going to do, give an object lesson that they will never forget. In fact, we've never forgotten it for 2,000 years. Several times Jesus said that his hour... His time of sacrifice had not yet come, John 2, John 7, a couple of other places. But now, John 12, 23 says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come. Chapter 13, verse 1, His hour had come. It was time for Genesis three fifteen to be fulfilled. Satan would bruise the heel of the Savior in death, but the Savior would crush the head of Satan gaining victory over sin by providing a sin sacrifice for all who would come to Christ by faith. Verse 2 tells us that Satan had already taken complete dominion of Judas. 
And lest anyone think that Judas was just a victim, Judas wanted to do what Satan wanted him to do. He was a willing participant led by his own wicked desires. He had already been stealing from the ministry's money bag for months, maybe even years. He saw Jesus as a means to future power, that Jesus was supposed to take over the world, and Judas was going to be right there to help him. But when it appeared very clearly to him that Jesus would not take power, Judas was done, and he betrayed him. Now verse 3 tells us of the special knowledge that Jesus, as the Son of God, possesses. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. And we see here three areas of special knowledge that Jesus possessed. And this is just a precursor. This sets up why he's going to do what he's doing. The first area of special knowledge that Jesus had, the Father had given all things to him. The Father had given all things to him. What all things? Well, we could make a short list. All things such as all his people. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That God the Father has selected some for salvation and every one of them will come to Christ. All things could include all his exaltation. Philippians 2, 9, because of his faithfulness to the cross, quote, therefore God has highly exalted him. All the exaltation that is due to Christ, the Father has given all things to him. All his people, all his exaltation, all of his glory. John 17, 1, Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So he's going to receive all of his people, all of his exaltation, all of his glory. Everything that is due to him is coming to him. He had another area of special knowledge here in verse 3, that he had come from God, that he had come from God. And this is a repeated theme in John's gospel. John 5, 24, Jesus asserted that God the Father sent him. John 5, 27, God sent him with authority to execute judgment. Jesus had the authority to give out eternal life. He had the authority to withhold eternal life. We see that he came from God in the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John 17, 2, God the Father had given the son authority over all flesh. And so not only had the Father given all things to him, but he had come from God. But there's a third area of special knowledge that he possessed. And this is the important one. He was going back to God. He was going back to God. John 17, 5, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, bring me home soon. Of course, John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus said he was returning to his father's house. Now, why does the text mention this special knowledge of Jesus? This is very interesting insight. This is one of the few times in the Bible that it tells us what Jesus was thinking, what's in his mind. We have the revelation of the Holy Spirit here telling us what the Savior's thinking. And so it must be important to us in some measure for the rest of this text to understand why he's thinking these things. I think the best way to understand this relationship is that verse 3 modifies, helps us understand verse 4. Jesus, knowing all these things, which ends with the fact that he's leaving soon. He's departing. He's going away. Verse 4, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. In other words, he was going to do way more than what he had done before to simply sit down and 
give them a verbal lesson. He was going to show them something they would never forget. Why? Because this was his last chance. And they needed to remember this one. As we've seen, as we walk through the Gospel of John, and we saw this when we preached through the Gospel of Mark, the disciples were picked by God because of God's grace, not because of their high intelligence. And they were slow to get many things. And so Jesus did something he knew they would never forget. He's going to leave an extremely powerful impression. Now, the washing of feet was customary in Israel as a courtesy to your guests arriving for a meal or for a visit. It was to transition them from the dusty travel outside to the joy of a a shared meal in a clean and comfortable environment. Everyone traveled by foot for the most part, and you wore sandals. You didn't have Nikes. You just wore sandals. And it was on a dusty road. And and we always talk about the dusty road, but we forget that there were animals everywhere. So your feet probably had a lot more than dust on them. And so there there was just, it was just a nastiness to your feet. And you entered into somebody's house. And so what usually happened upon arrival was that a, a servant or the host would take water in one basin and pour it over someone's feet into another basin and have it dried with a towel. In this case, they're simply using an upper room. They're not really guests of the household. So when they arrived, no one greeted them. No one washed their feet. They're just essentially using this hall, using this room. And so no one had performed this. Verse 5, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now we have to paint an accurate picture here. Supper has been served. It's on the table. It's time to eat. But before the meal is received, Jesus surprises all of them. The disciples would be reclined at this low table, uh, leaning on their arms with their feet extended outward behind them. And as they watched, most likely in shock, they didn't get up for Jesus to wash their feet. He came to each of them. They didn't even have to get up. This proved, by the way, his earlier claim which connected what he was doing to his coming sacrifice. Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he washed the dirty, dusty, manure feet of his disciples. By the way, including Judas's feet. Judas already intended to betray him, and so Jesus gave a perfect demonstration of what he commanded in Mark or in Matthew 5:44 to love your enemies. How humble, how debasing, what a demonstration of lowliness. I think we can only imagine the conflicted emotions of the disciples as they submitted to the Lord of all things, washing the grime off of their feet with his own hands. They, they weren't fully grasping to the level that they should, the magnitude of the person of Christ yet, but they did know this. They did know that he's the same one who healed thousands. He's the same one who preached to tens of thousands and the same one who stirred up hundreds of thousands. And yet here he is lowering himself to this task. This must have been embarrassing to them. I mean, the silence is deafening. Until Jesus comes to Peter, who's never known for his quietness. And so now we move from the the unusual act to the obvious question. The, The question that Jesus was setting up. He knew this was coming. This was the whole point of his unusual act. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
Peter grasped the paradox of what was happening. In fact, the Greek construction is emphatic. You yourself are washing my feet? Or we might write it this way, you are washing me? He was dressed down like a servant. Jesus was prepared to be on the floor to get wet, washing the dust and the grime of the Jerusalem roads off his disciples' feet. And certainly, they probably would have been happy to wash Jesus' feet. They just didn't think of it. But did you notice something? None of them offered to wash each other's feet. Because social equals didn't wash each other's feet. You just didn't do that, except on very rare occasions and as a mark of great love. In fact, some Jews even felt that Jewish slaves shouldn't ever wash feet. That only Gentile slaves or women or children, which tells you how sinful society viewed mankind. But even a Jewish slave shouldn't wash feet. One common story of ancient Israel recalls a rabbi named Rabbi Ishmael. He comes home from synagogue, and as he walks into the door, his own mother sits him down and says, let me wash your feet. And he refused. He said, you are my mother. That is not your place to do that. You should never do that. Well, mom was feisty, and according to legend, she sued her son. She took him to rabbinic court to prove that because he was a servant of God, because he was a man of honor, that it was a joy and a delight for her to wash his feet. She sued her son. Guess who won? We know mom won on that one. In other words, she argued the lesser should wash the feet of the greater. And she put herself in the category of the lesser and put her son, the rabbi, in the category of the greater. But now Jesus is demonstrating his love and his care for his own. In this case, this is the greater one washing the lesser one's feet. That's why there's such a question here. Yes, Jesus is demonstrating the humility necessary to be a servant in God's kingdom. That's his next lesson. We'll look at that next time. But he's also showing them the paradox of the king washing the feet of the slave and the savior washing the feet of the sinner. That's a paradox. It shouldn't be. So Jesus explains in verse 7, Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand the disciples don't even yet understand that Jesus must go to the cross. They've been slow to grasp this. They've been slow to believe it. On one occasion, Jesus said that he would die and he would be raised the third day. Peter pulled him aside and rebuked him. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. They didn't grasp it. They didn't understand it. Only after the resurrection of Christ would the disciples begin to have full comprehension of the significance of all that Jesus did. And in the same way, they don't understand that this act of washing their feet, this is symbolic in a way. It is anticipating a much greater act that he's about to perform, the, the, the cross. The foot washing says, if you think this is lowly and this is undeserved as a task for me to perform, you haven't seen anything yet. Wait till I'm bleeding in a public road naked before my countrymen and suffering before those who mock me. Jesus is humbling himself to wash their feet just like he would humble himself to wash away their sins. And so Peter is asked this obvious question, basically, why is the greater one washing the lesser one's feet? Why is the Son of God washing the feet of sinners? 
Well, now Jesus has arrived at the teachable moment. He's performed the unusual act. He's elicited the obvious question, and now we get to the revealed truth. The revealed truth is about the nature of salvation and the nature of sanctification, the process of becoming more like Christ. Verse 8, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. In fact, uh, when Peter says this, you shall never wash my feet, the Greek includes the negative response. No, you shall never wash my feet. The word never means not in this age. In, in other words, not for all time, Jesus, shall you ever wash my feet. It's a flat-out refusal. It just doesn't feel right to Peter. This is like being called in to be a visitor to the White House and, and saying to your tour guide, excuse me for a moment, I need to use the restroom. And you go into the restroom, and there's a restroom attendant saying, would you like a towel? And you say, thank you very much. And you look up, and the restroom attendant is the president of the United States. And you say, no, 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 you should be in the Oval Office. You shouldn't be here. It's unthinkable. But Jesus makes this clear-cut statement, and I would imagine looking Peter right in the eyes, saying, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You do not belong to me. You are not part of me. You are excluded from me. This is the language of inheritance. You have no part of my inheritance. Now we're seeing the significance, because Jesus isn't talking about just this particular act, but he's talking about spiritual washing. That unless the Lord Jesus Christ has washed you of sin, you have no part in him. Unless he cleanses you, you can ha- have no inheritance with him. And this helps us understand a common misconception of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not a process, it's not an evolution, it's not a journey. The Bible never speaks in those terms. Becoming a Christian involves a moment in time, a moment in which the Holy Spirit opens your spiritual eyes, opens your ears to help you recognize your own self-righteousness. It's a moment in time when you're made into a new creation in Christ where the gift of desperate, humble, humiliating faith is given to you. Becoming a Christian isn't a journey like slowly having the parts of your body washed until you're fully clean. It's a washing. It's an immersion It's a conversion. This is why we do the symbolic act of baptism by immersion. We don't do a symbolic act of sponge bath. That doesn't make sense. And it doesn't accurately reflect the nature of salvation. Listen to the language of washing and regeneration and heart change, which is instantaneous. It's all over the Bible. Titus 3, verse 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is the new birth. This is the mercy of God giving a new heart. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The child isn't born over a period of years. He's born over a period of minutes. Short period of time. Paul reminded us of the transformative nature of the new birth. He said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. I mean, he just died. Behold, the new has come. Isaiah 1, 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 
This is the language of an instant change of status. Sins that are like scarlet now become like wool. They become like snow. They become white. And so Peter, in characteristic fashion, he goes all in. This is another get out of the boat and walk on water moment for Peter. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In other words, wash every part of me. In typical unrestrained fashion, Peter immediately swings to the other side of the issue. Now, we can't fault him for not being teachable. He's, he's teachable. He's just not grasping that Jesus was speaking symbolically. I mean, given five more seconds, Peter's probably going to grab that basin and dump it over his head. And Jesus would have had to say, that's not what I meant. I'm glad you're wet, but that's not what I was talking about. Jesus isn't saying, if I don't wash your feet right now, you can't have eternal life. He's saying, if I don't wash all of your sins, you can't have eternal life. But we do have to commend Peter for wanting to be all in with Christ, at least at this moment. And now Jesus makes a very clear salvation and sanctification principle for us. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Jesus has just asserted the salvation of 11 of 12 of his disciples. Judas being the obvious exception, he is the fraud. Judas is the example here of religious works, which affect no heart change. He participated in the foot washing, but he was not cleansed. He was not forgiven. He was not a child of God. He hadn't sought forgiveness, but rather was going through the motions of being a part of those who were cleansed. Hey, I'm with the guys, so I'm one of them. The key phrase here that's so important for us, and in fact, it's so paradoxical, at least on the surface, that some Greek manuscripts of the New Testament chose to eliminate this key phrase because it seemed out of touch with the verse and thankfully, fabulous scholarship has proven it to be part of the original text. And it is the key phrase. And I think this is the only time in my ministry I'll ever say that the key phrase in this passage is, except for his feet. Except for his feet. Why is that the key here? Well, the idea here is that the disciples, they'd already had a spiritual bath, so to speak. They were already judicially clean before God. They were in Christ. The washing of the feet didn't represent some additional cleansing that was needed. This wasn't a second necessary act for salvation. This wasn't a continuing of grace that you need to continue building your justification, so to speak. In verses 6, 7, and 8, Jesus spoke of washing in a salvation sense, the washing necessary for forgiveness of sin. And here he speaks of the washing received from God as a once-for-all event. Once you've been washed, you don't need to be washed again. That salvation through the merciful act of regeneration, which enables you to exercise faith in Christ, never needs to be repeated. Never. We have full confidence, full assurance of the permanence of our standing in Christ. There's no such thing as losing your salvation any more than a butterfly can turn into a worm again. Once you're in Christ, you're in Christ. You're a new creation. The foot washing Jesus is offering here speaks of the progressive Christian experience of the forgiveness of daily sins within the family. 
This isn't forgiveness for salvation that's been accomplished once for all. This is forgiveness for relationship, for fellowship, for restoration, for being right with God as a member of the family of God. That as your feet are dirtied in the process of you walking through life, so you come continually to have them cleansed again. And the simplest illustration, I've used it before, it's worthy of using again, is that a child in my family will always be my child. You can do nothing to stop being my child. However, the sins you commit may impact our relationship, and we have to talk through those things, not to get you part of the family again, but to make sure fellowship is always good and fellowship is restored. This is the same picture of cleansing in John's first epistle, written to the church, instruction given to believers. In the first chapter, he reminds the church that anyone who says they have no sin is deceived and cannot be a Christian. And famously, in 1 John 1, 9, we get instruction about our sins, past and present. Listen carefully, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. You hear, the, you hear the language of washing, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The atonement of Christ, the atoning death of Jesus, provided for full, permanent, forever forgiveness of sins. That's taken care of. Colossians 2.13, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Titus 2.14, redeem us from all lawlessness. And so 1 John 1.9 must have some prior completion there must be some element of something that's already happened but there's also an element of the present duty of confession if we confess our sins with the reality of permanent forgiveness established what's the role of ongoing confession of sin well the word for confess is to tell something similar or to say the same thing can i put it this way when you confess your sins to the lord he's not surprised and shocked He's not saying, is there anything else I need to know? Is there something you've hidden in your closet that I don't, I don't get? It's not the idea of revealing information to God. He's, he's omniscient. He has all the information. It's the idea of agreeing with God about your sin. Affirming that daily sins that we commit are a disobedience to the righteous law of Christ. This is the process of seeking to eradicate sin in our lives as an act of love and loyalty and duty to the Lord. Can I put it this way? It's not so much that you're forgiven than unforgiven. Forgiven, unforgiven. It's not, I've confessed my sin, God loves me. I've sinned, God loves me not. I've confessed my sin, God loves me. I've sinned, God loves me not. God loves me, God loves me not. God loves me, God loves me not. Then we get into this horrible pattern of wondering, let's see, I sinned a minute ago. Is God going to strike me with lightning right now? I better confess fast. That's actually a Catholic view of confession. The confession is somehow a magical means for regaining God's favor. That's not the confession we're speaking of here. We're speaking of a conversation with the Lord in which we honestly agree with him about our sin. Neither does it mean that we're pressured to have to remember and confess every single sin to receive forgiveness. If that were the case, we would never be forgiven. We can't remember them fast enough. But what John is explaining in 1 John 1, 9 is that as believers in Christ... Since you're already forgiven, you will confess your sins. It's natural to you. You will agree with God about your sin. 
It's not about a judicial standing before God any longer. That's taken care of at the moment of salvation. But it's now it's about my ongoing relationship with the Lord, my ongoing battle for Christ's likeness. So I can assert with confidence that we are absolutely called to a life of confession. There's a very dangerous movement out there that will tell you once you've come to faith in Christ, you need never confess your sins again. Boy, that's like saying once you're born into my family, you need never admit it when you do wrong again. That's not right. This is what the Apostle Paul, part of what the Apostle Paul calls working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2. Not earning your salvation, but living it out. This is the spirit of Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What's the motivation for pressing on, for becoming more and more like Christ? Because I've been made Christ's. I've been made his own. This is the cry of King David in Psalm 32.5. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is written by the man called the man after God's own heart. This is the cry of King David in Psalm 51 too. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We absolutely are to live confession-filled lives. So what does a confession-filled life contribute to the triumphant Christian life? How do we put all this together? Well, I'd like to give you four benefits of a confession-filled life. And I think this will draw our thoughts into a more useful package. The first benefit of a confession-filled life is that confession produces a growing hatred of sin. Confession produces a growing hatred of sin. Through the Holy Spirit, you can begin to obey Psalm 97.10, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. This is a command, a Hebrew imperative, a command to hate evil. And when you confess sin... By the way, when you confess the same ones over and over and over again, day after day after day, you begin to loathe that sin, and that's good. I've seen believers confess sin to the Lord out loud in prayer with their teeth gritted. They're so disgusted. And Lord, once again, I was impatient, or I did this. They begin to loathe their sin. Proverbs 8.13 defines a true believer as one who fears God and hates evil. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. That's the definition of a believer. And because of this hatred of evil, you won't want to be around those who love evil. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. You're a Christian and you're dating an unbeliever. You know what you're not doing? You're not confessing sin because you don't hate your own sin and you think you can have a good time in this life with somebody who doesn't know Christ. If you say you're a believer, but your favorite people on earth are unbelievers and you love their evil and you think carousing with them is fun, you haven't confessed your sin. You don't hate sin enough. So confession produces through the Holy Spirit a growing hatred of sin. There's a second benefit of a confession-filled life. 
Confession produces determination to fight sin. Confession produces determination to fight sin. Now armed with this growing hatred of sin, we do have the means to battle our own sin, which is left over in our unglorified bodies. Listen to these admonitions to seek personal holiness. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 6, 12 through 14, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. The Apostle Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 5.15, And Christ died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake died and was raised. The Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Confession produces determination to fight sin. There's a third benefit of a confession-filled life. Confession produces thankfulness for your salvation. Confession produces thankfulness for your salvation. Now, how does that work? Well, let me walk you through this. As you confess, you agree with God about your sins, your sins of the day. And as you do this, this doesn't result in self-admiration. This results in self-deprecation. At the end of his life, the Apostle Paul easily we could evaluate as the greatest Christian who ever lived. He evaluated his own life. First Timothy 1.15, he called himself the foremost of all sinners. I like the older translations that say the chief of all sinners. And in his own battle for personal sanctification, he devotes almost the entire chapter of the book of Romans to his own battle, and he gives great transparency in Romans 7 He says that he's in a battle for sanctification. There's a war raging inside of him that though he belongs to Christ, his sin nature still fights him and still wrestles with him and still engages with him. And he cries out at the end of the chapter in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And when Paul reaches this point of absolute disgust with his own sin, What does this produce? The very next verse, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so confession produces thankfulness for salvation. As you confess the 10,000 sins you can remember and ask God to cover the million sins you didn't remember, it just makes you thank the Lord all the more that they're, they're all forgiven. One more benefit to a confession filled life Confession produces assurance of salvation. It produces assurance of salvation. In the very next chapter, Paul writes famously, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? A few verses later, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What category does your sin fall into? That falls into the nor anything else in all creation category. It can't separate you from the love of God. So how does constant confession produce assurance? 
as we keep thinking at all these things that cannot separate us from Christ, including our own sin, including all of these things which are, are attributes of our own rebellion, what does Paul say about all of these things? He says in Romans 8.37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. This is almost a silly word in Greek. It's a compound Greek word, which means to prevail completely. If we got really woodenly literal with it, it means to overwin or to win beyond. In our vernacular, we would say that to just take him down to the mat, to completely destroy him. It's the idea of a, of a team running up the score on a much lesser team and winning 115 to 3. It's to win beyond, overwin the connection between the triumphant Christian life and the confession-filled life. Confession produces a hatred for sin, produces a determination to fight sin, produces thankfulness for salvation. It produces assurance of salvation because in all these things we have won beyond, we have overwon, we have triumphed in Christ. And so it is appropriate to confess to, to the Lord every sin you can think of and put at the very end, but thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what does that make you? According to Paul, again, it means that you're blessed. You're blessed. Romans 4, verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. One of my heroes of the faith the great American Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards. He was born in 1703 and is famous for a number of accomplishments. He was the president of a seminary for a short period of time. He's famous for preaching what some consider the greatest sermon on hell in the history of the church, sinners in the hands of an angry God. He's famous for standing up for the sanctity of the Lord's table as being for believers only, and this was even to his own detriment. His own church fired him for making that stand. But before he did all that, what he was most famous for, he was known for his 70 resolutions. And he wrote these as a very young man. I want to just highlight a couple. Number seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. That's a good filter. Number 17, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die, that I will live in the way that I wish I had. Number 24, resolved whenever I do any conspicuously evil action to trace it back till I come to the original cause and then both carefully endeavor to do so no more and to fight and to pray with all of my might against the origin of it. What is he saying? Look at the heart motive of my sin and slay it. But listen to number 65, resolved very much to exercise myself in this all my life long with the greatest openness I am capable of to declare my ways to God and to lay open my soul to him, all my sins, temptations, difficulties, sorrows, fears, hopes, desires, and everything and every circumstance. He made that resolution when he was 19 years old. The first element of a triumphant Christian life is a confession-filled life. 
And I hope that that will be your resolution as well. Our Father, we come to you now in thankfulness for this reminder that though we are so graciously saved by your grace and our sins are paid for and, and judicially before the courts of heaven, we are completely rendered innocent now and we have been given the imputed righteousness of Christ. We have been credited with his perfection. We have reckoned to our account the glorious perfections of our Savior. But we still get our feet dirty. In this church, this morning, in all likelihood, a man spoke sinfully to his wife. In this church, this morning, in all likelihood, a woman spoke dishonorably to her husband. In this church, this morning, children were spoken to in a way that they never should be. In this church this morning, we had thoughts of impatience and sin and selfishness. Lord, we're still stuck in these unglorified bodies, and so our feet get dirty each and every day. Help us never to be so arrogant as to think that just because we are saved, we don't need to speak to you of our sin any longer. We do not speak to you of our sin as those who need them judiciously washed away again, but we do speak to you as those who need to maintain our fellowship with you by humbly acknowledging and agreeing with you about our sin. And so, Lord, even as, even as we, at the beginning of our worship service, take a moment to confess, we'd like right now, Lord, to just have a moment of silence where each person here might confess once again so that we might leave this place cleansed and, and with a, a, a joy of purification in our relationship with you. And so we would now pray silently for a moment. And our Father, we rejoice in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Based on the cross of Christ, based on the finished work of salvation in our lives, might we live confession-filled lives. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.